I only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me, are you busy tonight? I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox Or any other excuse, they could say there'll be a man breathing fire Tyro walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude I'm never really interested, not even when they've instead it Unless they say there's free drinks and food Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. As promised this week, it's just me and Rebecca, but uh, we are discussing Rebecca's recent research, which she has submitted for the MA in Student Affairs in Higher Education that we've both just finished. So this episode is going to be all about Rebecca and her research. And then probably in a couple of episodes time, I might pop up and talk to you about mine. But this one is all about Rebecca. So Rebecca, thank you for agreeing to chat with us about it. Yay! All of a sudden, I just got really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, you're on the guest side rather than on the co-host side. How does it feel? A bit weird. I'm kind of thinking, I hope this is interesting for everyone listening. <laughs> I'm sure it will be very interesting. It was really interesting for me to read. And, you know, the subject that you've written about, I, I must admit, I don't know a huge amount about. Obviously, being in higher education, I'm exposed to it. So I've, I've seen it. Uh, obviously, I've seen a lot of providers pop up here and there and different buildings pop up. So I know a little bit about it. But uh, I think for those listening who may not know what your particular research field is, and then also to learn a little bit more about it in general, do you want to just give you a general overview of the research subject and perhaps also why you're interested in looking in that particular area? So for those who may not know, I work in student accommodation and I've worked in that sector for 12 years and specifically in the last five, six years, I've worked in the area of PBSA, which is an acronym for purpose-built student accommodation, so the private sector. So in a lot of cities in the UK, particularly the big cities where there might be one or two universities or a high number of students, there has been a boom in the building of student accommodation, I would say in the last 10 years. And it's forecast um, this year that there'll be about 700,000 beds that are operated and built by purpose-built student accommodation. And as someone who has worked for a number of operators and who has worked in the role of property manager, or sometimes it's called accommodation manager or community manager, um, I was really interested in interviewing people who have done that role, but also the role of deputy accommodation manager, because often they assume the duties of their boss if their boss is on leave or at a meeting or has to be somewhere or is ill, for example. So I decided I would give voice to those particular individuals. I was very interested in what it was like to work for those particular um, operators or a range of operators, because I think having seen what I've seen over the last couple of years, that's very much one that I think a discussion needs basically to take place around that particular role. So we have a lot of conversation happening around, you know, students and living in student accommodation and mental health and the, the growth of student accommodation. A lot of the research is around the growth of it, but there's absolutely nothing from a UK perspective about the experience of working in student accommodation and what you might face and what it's truly, truly like. So that's a very broad answer. Uh, it's a little bit more detailed than that, but effectively, that's what I looked at. Okay, so yeah, that's that's interesting, and obviously from from the side of working on the university sector, I've obviously seen a lot of different providers pop up here and there. I think my sort of first experience of it is whenever I go into London, I, I get into Waterloo, and I think as you get into the London boundary near about uh, Clapham Junction, there's these huge buildings with 
you know, student accommodation branded stuff on there. And you just see them popping up all over the place. And it's a market that's grown a lot. Sort of, has it been the last sort of 10 years or so? Like how, how recent a thing is it? Yeah, I think there's been huge amounts of development in the last 10 years. And it's quite interesting that you asked the question in terms of like, when has this boom of construction started? And a lot of the investment reports that are out there that are kind of written by Savills or Cushman and Wakefield and Knight Frank have been written over the last, I guess, seven to 10 years or so. I wanted to try and find research and data that pertained to the growth of student accommodation in the last 20 to 25 years from the private perspective. And it doesn't exist, or at least I couldn't find it anyway. This is kind of part of the problem. Um, And you're right, when you go to to cities like London, you just see these massive buildings. You see cranes everywhere. In Manchester at one stage last year, there was about 80 cranes on the skyline. And a huge chunk of that was building student accommodation on the Oxford corridor. So where MMU and University of Manchester are. And you see some of the big players and their branding. But also what we're seeing now is a lot of new operators come in and give it a go because it's it's continuously sold as something that is a sure investment that will return really great yields. And even now during covid the sector from an investment perspective are saying, you know, COVID is just a blip. It'll recover next year because they're looking at forecasts of student numbers and that there's going to be a surge of 18 year olds because it's going to be a demographic change and things like that. But um, in terms of growth, yeah, I think last seven to 10 years, we've seen huge growth. You've seen lots of investors coming in from other countries like UAE or from Singapore or that part of the world um, and sometimes you know these investors are big pension funds like Canadian or Australian pension funds and they're just putting in the money to get returns for their pension clients um, and that's uh, who a lot of people are behind these com- accommodation uh, funds and whatnot and then you've got bigger operators who own their own accommodation and fund the building of their own accommodation. So it's quite a mixed bag of people who are in there. You've got like the biggest players like United Students who are the market leaders and have about 75,000 beds. Then you've got some smaller players who might have a building here or there. And in between that, you've got a whole plethora of operators who own anything from 1,000 to 40,000 beds or are operating them on the behalf of other people in numerous cities all across the UK. And I guess the the really interesting thing from from my side, and I suppose for your side, and is a big reason why you have a passion for the area, but also for this particular field of research, is that it's it's an interesting dichotomy where you bring in typical private sector analysis, you know, investment return on investment, profit margins, all of that, but you combine that with then that student services, student affairs side of things, and it's one of the parts of the sector which is quite different to the rest of it obviously some would look at the university sector and you know we could have a long discussion about how universities are set up now whether they're set up you know more like for profits or but we're not going to get into that now but it's an interesting combination of the two isn't it really because you're bringing in a, a two very different approaches to one place and I suppose that is a big highlight as to why your research has come at quite a critical time and we'll get on to what it showed and, and what you learned but you know, it's about bringing people in who are the right kinds of people to work not only for a private investment company, but also ones who can bring that duty of care to students, that student affairs approach. And it's quite a difficult balance to strike. Yeah, it is. And when 
I mean, when you look at student accommodation, there's a couple of angles you can look at it from. So you can look at private student accommodation who own their own buildings or who manage student accommodation on behalf of an investor or multiple investors. And so a student will see a brand and they just think that brand manages and owns that student accommodation. And that just isn't always the case. And that's the case for a lot of operators. Then you'll have the operators who own their own accommodation. And then you'll also have some or or both of those types of operators who are in partnership with universities and universities will give them nominations agreements. They can be hard and soft nomination agreements. They can help them build their student accommodation on or off campus because the university hasn't got enough of their own or they haven't got the funding to build it. You have some operators who would buy some accommodation of university and then the university will get a capital receipt off that. And then you have operators who will have buildings in a big city or any city. And part of that building will be direct let only. So they sell directly to students, their rooms. And part of that building could be a noms agreement. Or they could have a building where it's completely direct let or it's completely noms agreements. There's such a mixed experience out there or what type of accommodation is in place. And you'll also have a lot of buildings as well that will house students from lots of different universities. So if you're in somewhere like Birmingham, you could have students from Aston and BCU and University of Birmingham in one building. So that's a different experience that you have to provide or a different experience students will have depending on the university they're in and the relationship they have with that operator. And then, like I said with the research, there is no research in the UK, very, very little research about the experience students have or staff have living and working in student accommodation and private student accommodation. There's a bit in the US, there's a bit in Australia, but everything's focused uh, on an investor perspective in the UK. And there is some research from operators themselves about the experience of students or what it is to be a student today. So there is um, research around student mental health, about resilience, um, a few bits and pieces like that, like United Students and GSA and Sodexo have pushed out over the last couple of years, which is really useful to the sector. And certainly I read a lot of and quoted some of my own research. But in terms of staff, we've done nothing around staff and what it is to be um, a staff member in PBSA. And that really surprised me when I read your piece of research because all of the variants that you've mentioned within the PBSA sector has must have a massive trickle-down effect onto the students. You know, the the way that a private provider or a PBSA provider provides their service, whether in conjunction with a university, whether that be on behalf of a university, must have an impact both on how the students then experience that provision but also on how staff experience that provision and, and what staff are brought in, what type of people are brought in. So it surprised me when when I, I saw that there is little research on it because you can see how, and you've quite rightly shown in, in your research, how those different ways of structuring PBSA has a massive impact on those that work for it, experience it uh, and live there. Yeah, definitely. When you talk about what's the impact or the experience in the student, the answer is I don't know because no one's done that research and I haven't looked at that particular angle because I was focused on initially the staff side of it because no one's explored staff before. But I definitely think as someone who's managed uh, PBSA buildings in the UK and worked and managed buildings on university campus in Ireland and worked with universities in the UK, that I think it is different. And I suspected that for a long time because of just what you see on the ground and the interaction staff have or the experience staff have had trying to tackle and resolve numerous issues, not necessarily serious things, but lots of different things and trying to work in collaboration. 
for a staff perspective, it's, you know, it was actually one of my findings. Um, I, there was an awful lot of findings in the research because what I did was I effectively went out and interviewed numerous people who'd worked in the position of accommodation manager or deputy accommodation manager for a period of one academic year in PBSA. And one of the findings was university partnerships that depending on the relationship they had in place or if they had a relationship in place, depending on the type of building they managed, um, that directly affected experiences they had when trying to resolve certain issues. So, for example, if you were an accommodation manager and you worked in a building and you had a brilliant relationship with a university because you had nominations agreement in place and your your building housed either 100 students or 500 students from that university, well, the university had an interest in building a relationship with you because they had nominated those rooms for you. And so it was important to the university and to the operator to have a really good reciprocal relationship where the students felt cared for, that the needs were addressed, that if there's any issues, they were signposted uh, effectively to it, or that there was great escalation policies in place and that there was strong contact. So if the operator needed someone to contact in the university about anything, whether it was mental health, an academic issue, you know, a safety issue, they knew who to contact because they had that relationship in place. Whereas if it was um, a accommodation manager who managed the direct let building or they had no university relationship in place or no reason to have one, then it was very difficult to form relationships. And sometimes it was a case of that a particular department didn't necessarily want to know or build that relationship because they didn't need to. Um, so that there was a stark difference. And I think one of the the staff members that I interviewed had said that you know we have tried over and over again to try and build a relationship and it's just like knocking down or trying to knock down a brick wall and it's incredibly difficult and there's no one we can call there's there's no one we can email if we want to escalate an issue um, or if we're having difficulty trying to resolve an issue whereas if they had the same issue in a building where there was a really strong relationship in place it was easy and quicker to get something resolved. So for me, it kind of brought up the question, if you're a student living in this this particular building and there's no university relationship in place, are you going to have a lesser experience? Because, you know, something that you have an issue with can't be resolved more effectively. Um, so that's kind of made me think about more research that needs to be done in the sector, but certainly one that can be explored just by itself. Yeah, and certainly from everything you just said it's quite clear that these setups are not just arbitrary these setups are not necessarily just a benefit to an investor or to a university or to a provider that there is a as i've mentioned there is a trickle down impact on those that are involved whether it means that there is more support for the staff less support for the staff a positive environment negative environment and also those that that may be coming into the sector with little experience or relevant experience but in a different field so sort of reversing back a little bit and going into something a little bit earlier on in your research was a really interesting part that you highlighted on the type of people that seem to be working in these roles as accommodation manager and deputy um, accommodation managers and you're highlighting essentially that so much of their experience actually comes from a different sector do you want to sort of just talk a little bit about that yeah, I mean, I said earlier that there's forecast to be about 700,000 PBSA beds in the UK. And actually, there was an article that came out today that said for the first time, the number of PBSA beds surpasses the number of university beds. And that's and when you take into if if university and PBSA partnerships 
um, are considered private beds, then they are, there are more PBSA beds than there are university owned. But because there's so many beds now in operation and so many operators, nobody has a figure of how many staff are in student-facing roles in purpose-built student accommodation or how many people work in PBSA. There's no estimate out there because no one's tried to do that research. But if we look at just student-facing staff, I can just give you my own experience, but also I can give you the experience of the participants that I interviewed. The vast majority are coming from the hospitality background. Um, so managing hotels or managing hostels because the understanding is, well, if you can manage that building, you can manage a student accommodation building. And so they're looking at it from an asset point of view. Can you manage the asset? Can you adhere to compliance and health and safety regulations? Can you sell a room? Can you collect the rental fees? So very much about you know the bottom line. And that is a huge part of the job. I've done that. Um, I enjoy that part of my role, but there's so much more to that. But when you take staff who've worked in that sector, who have some brilliant transferable skills that are absolutely needed, like customer service, for example, and providing a great service, um, you are asking people to manage a building and work with uh, customers who will traditionally stay in your building for you know nine or 12 months, whereas those staff members are coming from a sector that traditionally has people stay for a few days or a week or a long weekend, like you know when you and I go to a hotel. You also have a lot of people coming from retail. So again, sales, getting the deal, the bottom line, that kind of thing. And then you got people like myself who just fall into it. Most people who you ask, if you ask how you got into student accommodation, they'll tell you you fell into it because there is no degree in student accommodation. There is no you know postgraduate course um, and some people come from the construction sector as well you see a lot of that particularly in senior positions as well so you've got a lot of people coming in who have an understanding of managing a building and that's great that's transferable but there is I wanted to find out what was the induction or initial induction they got or if they got one at all that kind of helped them understand what it was to work in student accommodation now my intention was to interview 10 people I had 10 people lined up COVID happened and then I was only able to interview nine but nine was still pretty good because I did qualitative research I did interviews I I think it's very important to to record the experiences of individuals and hear their story effectively and without a doubt everybody across the board there was no one that said otherwise they kept saying this phrase thrown into the deep end sink or swim one participant said you know I was thrown in so deep without armbands and I had to swim and this was said over and over again it was very much a case of you had to learn by doing or learn by watching or if it wasn't for helpful colleagues in the sector who would show you how to do things you um you didn't stand a chance essentially and I know from my own experience working in the sector I've seen people come in with great experience and skills and think, I'm going to manage an asset, this is going to be great, I'm excited to try something new. But actually, they get into the role and they go, well, I didn't know I had to deal with student mental health issues. I didn't know there was going to be antisocial behaviour. I didn't know this was an issue in the world of student accommodation, whether it be, you know, parties or drug abuse. And you can imagine, you know, new staff coming in now and dealing with a pandemic, which every sector is dealing with, of course. But there was no structural induction to transition them into the sector. And the participants I spoke to had experience working for 11 operators in the UK and not one made this the focus and of course there are other findings as well but in terms of that transition into the sector we talk a lot about student transitions and the transition into university but we don't look at the staff transition into the sector and 
what the differences are. And I just think that's something where we're, we're missing a trick. And I think actually we could do quite a lot in the sector about making a career out of it. And actually, you know, what are the key things you need to know to effectively be in this sector and to do the best you can? And what are those individual kind of quirky things that you need to learn more of? Because it is so much more than just asset managing a building. I think you've touched on something that also is a symptomatic problem of wider student affairs potentially in the UK and and that is that staff transition and transferability and and full understanding of the kind of things people are moving into we've highlighted before in discussions and interviews with other guests about how people fall into things and I think that that's great and I think you know the the way people fall into things is a natural process. I think that's good for the sector. I think it's good for people, but it can be problematic in some areas. And I think that that is certainly something that I took away from from your research is that that falling into things in this area is not necessarily a good thing all the time. So let's just rewind a little bit. So overall, we've spoken a little bit about the state of play of purpose-built student accommodation in the UK. You've mentioned that you spoke to nine people. Uh, That did amuse me as a quick aside. Whilst we were going through COVID and we were chatting quite a lot whilst we were getting our studies together, as you'll find out in a couple of episodes time, I had real trouble getting hold of anybody to begin with. So I was on zero participants for quite a while. And we were having a discussion about how we were struggling. And I asked Rebecca, how are the participants going? She said, it's really tough. I'm not going to interview as many as I wanted. Said, How many did you want? 10. How many have you interviewed? Nine. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that did make me laugh. I originally wanted to do 15. I really originally wanted to do 15 and my lecture was like 10 is fine. And going through the research and then obviously writing up the research I understand why 15 was far too much. And actually there are people who do PhD research interviewing just five people. So I'm glad, you know, I think maybe it was me being a bit of a perfectionist and wanting a nice even number of 10. (laughs) I can understand nine is a bit annoying as a number. It is just a little bit annoying, but I think it hasn't taken anything away from from the data that you've got from it. So, So these participants that you spoke to, it was all qualitative interviews, as you mentioned, and were they all either the equivalent of accommodation managers and deputy accommodation managers? Pretty much. Some of them had progressed beyond the position of accommodation manager. They got promotions. And so one of the qualifiers for being part of the research, like I said earlier, was that you had to have worked a minimum of one full academic year in purpose-built student accommodation. And the reality was most participants had far more than this. We had people who had three, five, six beyond years experience. I think combined, I didn't add it up, but off the top of my head, you're talking about 25 years experience, if not a bit more between nine participants. And some of them were working in the role of accommodation manager. Some had recently promoted. Um, some had started as um like office admin assistants and work their way up to a deputy and then become accommodation manager. So they'd all done that particular role at least one year, but actually the vast majority did it longer than that. They did maybe three or four years under their belt, if not a bit longer. So that was really fascinating. And yes, I did primarily do uh, qualitative research, but I did put, I was very proud of it, Rob. I had a, a lovely Excel table. I think it was the best table I've ever made in my life of some quantitative data, which was how many years they've worked in purpose for students. 
food and accommodation, how many operators they've worked for. And the fact that there was 11 operators and they could speak about just shows how people move around in the sector. You know, we joke that it's quite incestuous, but actually people do move around quite a lot within PBSA because they follow managers or they get a promotion or they see a better role or they move. And because PBSA is in so many cities around the UK, you can transfer quite easily from one city to the next if maybe you're moving for family reasons or personal reasons. So that was quite interesting. And also because I like I didn't want to give away any identifying factors about which operators they were working for and didn't do that, obviously. But I classified the operators into three groups, so it's small, medium and large. So if, if they worked for operators at less than 10,000 beds, that was small. 10,001 to 30,000 was medium and 30,000 and one plus was large, which doesn't give anything away because there are a couple of operators that have more than 30,000 beds. So they had a range of experience working for small, medium and large operators as well, which is really interesting. So yes, as we've mentioned, you were looking at the induction and training of staff moving into PBSA and just their experience on what it was like when they first came in primarily and trying to look at whether induction is being done effectively and something that we will talk about a little bit later on was a major outcome and is something we've discussed a lot about within student affairs in the UK and that's kind of codes of practices and ideas of of a baseline for everybody but before we get to kind of the the end point of your research you discovered quite a lot and there were quite a few findings that came out of your research so I suppose let's start off by saying what do you think is the main highlight of those findings? What would you say is the most salient point to take away? And then also we'll kind of explore some of the other things that you found. But if you kind of had to pick one particular salient point, what would you say is the take home? The thing with the data I gathered was that even though I spoke with nine participants, I don't want to say only nine because I think nine is quite substantial for the type of research that it is. There was an awful lot of data which demonstrated how much people wanted to talk and were willing to talk. I think I'd had, I scheduled an hour interview with every single participant. They all ran over. One of them was about two and a half hours. Um, I transcribed all the interviews. And I think when I look back, I probably had about 120, 130,000 words worth of transcription, um, which just shows you, you know, they have no voice and no one's really asking their opinion before on subjects like this. In terms of what was a standout finding, there were many, and for the purpose of writing up the thesis, I only had 14,000 words, which was hard. I picked five, and so the five that I wrote about was student mental health, conflict management and threatening behaviour, cultural awareness, critical incident management and university partnerships. Now, for student mental health, the obvious thing is to go down the route of, of you know, student mental health is on the rise and an increase in attempted suicides and students taking their own lives, and that did come through. But actually, what we don't talk about is the impact of student mental health issues on staff who have to deal with it. Now, it is correct that if a student presents with having a particular issue, whether they just say they're not feeling 100%, that you signpost them to the most apt and appropriate services. And that's what people are doing. Unless they have a difficult university or lack of university partnership in place when they might be aware of counselling services or particular departments in a university, but they don't know anybody to pick up the phone to and say, this student has come because they haven't got a data sharing agreement in place or something like that, or the student doesn't want them to do that. It's, it's really complex. It doesn't necessarily need to be complex, but it can be complex. Um, so that was something that was uh, a standout that came out. And it was really obvious that these participants really, really care about the work they do. 
really, really care about the students. But also there was an issue around boundaries. There was no formal training around what is crossing a boundary and what are you expected to do in that particular position. So there were stories of people sitting in a room by themselves, listening to a student talk about their mental health issues, which is a risk for both the student and themselves. That would be a no-no in the sector. But there's no you know, set of competencies or a framework for accommodation managers or deputy accommodation managers to adhere to. It's not something the sector has decided to create or probably has time to create. You know, It's not something we've talked about in the sector. So... In terms of mental health training, there are a lot of operators, and I mean a lot of operators, who talk about the importance of student mental health, which is brilliant. And they talk about that we provide mental health training and we provide mental health awareness training and we have a mental health first aider in every building. Of the participants I spoke to, only two of them had participated in training. And they had that was for two operators that uh, individually they worked for. So only two out of the 11 operators identified had provided training. One was a one-day awareness course that was provided by a university partner. So they wouldn't have gone on that course only for the university invited them onto it. And then one was mental health first aid, which the participants said was fantastic and everybody should do. So there is this gap where there's lots of operators saying, yes, we do all this, but actually on the ground, it's probably not happening as much as we think it is. And there's also this danger and risk around if somebody is a mental health first aider, and, and they leave or they're on annual leave or they're sick or they're not there that day and something crops up, then what happens? You know, do you, any, if you haven't got a university partnership in place or, or you know the effective signposts and uh, protocols, what do you do? So this kept coming up over and over again. So that was really interesting. Um, but the boundaries one did actually, I think, there were red flags for me in terms of what people thought was okay behavior and that that this was expected of them but actually there was no expectations because there was no induction to tell them this is what's expected from you if and when this happens and one of the participants who was working for an operator at the time and had previously worked for some other operators had because they had gained experience about what to do and even though they hadn't gotten induction in the operator they worked for, but because of previous experience, they knew what to do in these cases. But they would they would participate in normally quarterly meetings with other accommodation managers. And the accommodation managers would say, well, what do we do if this happens? And he's like, well, you ring 999. And what do we do if this happens? And so people were learning by making mistakes or by ringing up a colleague, not because there was any procedures in place and not because they had a, a particular induction in place. So a couple of red flags there and kind of makes me a bit dubious and worried about if something really serious happened and if someone's life was at risk because of it. So again, this this you know research wasn't created to cast shade on any particular operator. It's more about starting a conversation about how we can do better and support staff. I think, it, you know, it... For me, what it really felt like reading your research was it harked back and made me think back to when we spoke to Claire Slater and we discussed sexual assault and sexual violence on campus. And she said that there was kind of almost like a watershed moment or a watershed period of time where the sector kind of realized, oh, okay, we're not doing this right. Like There are things happening on, on our campuses that we're not equipped to deal with. We're not quite sure how to deal with them. We need to change how we function to address this. It's not going to go away. And it kind of felt a little bit like that reading your research. I felt some of the quotes from some of your participants are <laughs> not going to lie, they're a bit of a gut punch when you listen to them. And as you say, there are some serious red flags that come up in some of the ways that uh, particular incidents were handled. And you do, I feel, I have felt quite sorry for your participants in some of the 
discussions that you held with them just from your research. And you can tell that that lack of induction has had a really major impact on them because not only do they feel obliged to help a student in particular case, they don't have anywhere to turn to look after themselves or to actually follow a particular procedure in a situation. And it, it really does feel quite scary that there isn't that for these uh, members of staff because obviously on the on the higher education side we feel a little bit it's probably the first time I've actually felt ahead of the curve necessarily in, in that student affairs way because it's something that we're very used to in universities is that if something is happening we, we either have training on it or we're given training internally or that people learn and it, it's there's a framework put in place but it certainly didn't seem like that was the case for these members of staff. When I delved into critical incident management in a little bit more detail, so one of the questions I would ask was, was there ever any incidents or issues that you felt unprepared for that you didn't receive training for? And there was lots of different types. They ranged from minor to major critical incidents. And nothing that surprised me, to be honest, having worked in the role myself for six years. But there were some issues which occurred or incidents that evolved sexual assault and students reporting very serious cases and a couple of the participants um, explained what they did and how they effectively resolved or tried to investigate the issue and I know from working in the sector and I actually know from reading Claire Slater's research and having read up on the subject um, that actually if you're involved if you're investigating a sexual assault there's some serious protocols that you need to to follow and so some of the participants are saying things like oh we sent cleaners upstairs to remove the bedding and we just use common sense and things like that and a couple of them also said they weren't aware of any critical incident management procedures that were in place now i don't believe for a minute that there's an operator with no critical incident management procedures. I, I think it might vary from operator and operator, the detail or the range they have in place. But there's there was this sense of that some of them need to be updated to reflect the contemporary issues and challenges that staff are dealing with. And there was this sense from all the participants that the roles that are advertised, the job descriptions that are advertised are very much or are so focused on assets and compliance and sales and you know collecting rental fees that it actually there's a gap of understanding between those who write those role descriptions at head offices and those who actually effectively perform those duties on the ground and that it's missing the holistic stuff and that it's missing some of the challenges and realities now no one's going to write a job description and say you're going to have to deal with you know sexual assault or any of this stuff or drugs or any social behavior because that isn't the case in every city and it isn't the case in every building and it just you know I didn't have to deal with all the range of things that they talked about but I think a bit of realism is needed and I actually think that by doing that you may start to attract people from other sectors so you know what if we attract people from education who've worked with young people or social work or social care I think actually there's a lot of skills there that people have that you could probably bring into the sector that would really benefit the sector um you know I didn't come from a hospitality background I learned about asset management I just had some skills on the other side of things and I think that's something that we can do, or at least to try and mix it up a little bit and try and influence what we do a bit better. So, yeah, critical incident management and some of the incidents that people spoke about, 
it really raged. But I decided for that particular one, I would talk about sexual assault because it came up a, t- a few times from a number of participants. And yeah, I was quite surprised. And when you're conducting these interviews, you obviously have to maintain a very, like, you have to be like non-reactive and you can't be, you can't turn around and say that's completely wrong. Why did you do that? Because you're there as a researcher, you can't show any bias whatsoever. So it was interesting from my own perspective to conduct the research and have that at the back of my mind the whole time. But yeah, there's, there's, and like I said, at the end of the research, all these individual things I investigated could be, could be academic papers in themselves if somebody wanted to go investigate and do a bit of research in a bit more detail. Something else that you put as a particular finding, just to kind of fill in the gap, the way you wrote this up was through a thematic analysis approach. So for anybody who's not either familiar with that or people who may be familiar with that, it's essentially where you are coding particular responses and you're looking for trends in in the data that comes back from people. And more often than not, it fits within some kind of theme. So a particular theme that came out in your findings and that you highlighted and that was one of real interest and quite concerning, just as long as it was with critical incident management, was also cultural awareness. And that was quite a that was quite a difficult read as somebody who's an international student advisor. And for somebody who deals with multicultural students all day every day that was quite shocking to to read some of it yeah I was surprised but I also wasn't surprised that it came up and I wrote it from the perspective of looking at Chinese students and the reason I did that was because they were mentioned over and over again by again numerous participants and there was a few in particular where a number of the buildings they had operated had high cohorts of Chinese students and one of the buildings they operated had was 95% full of Chinese students which actually isn't unusual there are there are a lot of um PBSA builds that are like that in numerous cities around the country and it's numerous operators um that attracts lots of Chinese students to particular buildings because they're a cohort who they'll share information with with each other so if if word gets out amongst the community that a particular building is a good place to stay and the staff are nice they'll recommend it and before you know it you've got a huge cohort staying there which operators love because you know it's it's filling rooms but you know it's it's also reaffirming to them that they're providing a good service and that the community like living there but a couple of people said things like and I was quite surprised, actually, for because there were some operators that aim to attract wealthy students. The Chinese students are often known or perceived to be wealthy students, but also they attract students from the Middle East who are very wealthy and who come from wealthy families and money is not an option and they will pay hundreds of thousands to come over here and spend an absolute fortune on student accommodation. And they sometimes look down on staff because they see their staff as almost um, maids because they have that kind of staff in their own buildings as well. And I didn't go into too much detail about that in the thesis because word count. But with regards to the Chinese community, there was a lot of conversation and negative bias around they're seen as messy, they're rude, they don't clean. That was mentioned quite a bit as well. But for participants who worked for operators where they constantly aimed to attract that cohort of students because you know they were a luxury operator or were trying to perceive themselves as a luxury operator i made the assumption that the staff there would get training about you know chinese traditions and cultural traditions and things that are important to the community and actually there was none of that whatsoever they all learned by making mistakes so for example they said to me they 
decided to remove rice cookers because they were seen as um, an unsafe appliance and it wasn't on the approved list of appliances. And they said it caused, and this is their words, a riot in the student accommodation. Now, you and I know the importance of a rice cooker to an individual Chinese student in the community and the importance of rice in their diet and their own cultural traditions, but they didn't know that. And so it wasn't by making this mistake and causing a riot that they then realized how important it was to the community. They didn't know about Chinese New Year or they had very limited information about it. They were saying things that the Chinese community don't like it when you take cleaning cloths and you put it into a wash machine in the communal laundrette because that's perceived as dirty. They don't want to put their clothes in there afterwards. And so you have to have separate washing machines to do this. And things like this, they just learned by doing. And they were in operation for quite a number of years and still staff were feeding back that actually there's all these cultural traditions we need to learn about. So Eid and Ramadan, uh, Diwali, cultural traditions around Nigerian students, Middle Eastern students. And it was just a case of that you learned by making mistakes. You learned by insulting somebody, by upsetting them in the wrong way, which I was really surprised about because I thought if you as a business are focused on getting that particular cohort into your buildings, well, then you should be demonstrating that you really understand that cohort and that you're going out of your way to make them feel welcome and part of the community that you're marketing. So that was quite surprising for me. And it was quite sad to hear things like, Chinese students have been described as messy, rude or difficult. They don't clean and um, that they expect everything done for them because that certainly wasn't my understanding or my experience when I, when I worked with Chinese students. I then, I suppose if we, if we turn it on its head, it's kind of indicative of exactly why, I assume exactly why you intended to undertake this research because granted that, that perhaps isn't the best way of, of approaching things and it's a shame that members of staff are, are thinking that way and seeing students that way but equally the flip side of that is if you're not if you're not educated to understand a different way educated is the wrong word but if you're not inducted in a way that includes things like cultural awareness or unconscious biases or the things that we in the higher education sector kind of get to a certain point when we see these courses coming up at our universities like yeah I did that like six months ago you know you get it all the time but if you don't have that then really what are we kind of saying here when we're not really saying that we expect you to be perfectly well-rounded culturally aware individuals if you've never had that expectation to go through training like that have that induction have that experience is it really fair to say that we expect that of people not really um, the the reliance on learning by mistakes is a, is a concerning one and is one that is very well highlighted in your research. Mm, and it's it's interesting because a number of the participants that I interviewed, they talked about ad hoc training they did get um, on things like emotional intelligence, as an example. Um, you know, these kind of like professional development courses you might get every now and again, but they were only ever given to the accommodation manager. Nobody else got them. So there was one participant who thought an emotional intelligence course they did, they thought it was so beneficial that they went away and they created their own workbook and then gave that to their other staff members because they thought it was so relevant. And it also went into detail around how to deal with conflict. So if you get a student or a parent or anybody who comes to reception or rings you up and is a bit rude or is a bit confrontational and you feel like you can't handle this, they were able to be equipped with basic skills about how to de-escalate that conflict or de-escalate someone from being angry to not being so angry. 
And but that was only provided to one person, to the accommodation manager. But this person took it upon themselves to do that. And we saw time and time again in the research that I was doing, in the interviews that I had, people taking on their own initiative to make things better for their team members because the training wasn't there provided or you had accommodation managers or deputies who had experience from other operators using what they learned from other operators to make their business better or to make processes better so one participant talked about if they didn't have a process for doing something they would look back to whether there was a process in place at a different operator they worked for and then just use that and tweak it to make it work, which is fascinating. So we're all like pinching things from different operators and making it work. And, you know, I think that does happen in the sector. I've definitely seen that happen in the sector. And I've definitely had people give me stuff from different operators over the years. And I'm sure people are honest with themselves. They know that goes on and that's fine. But perhaps there's... Oh, 100%. I think if we're all honest with each other, you know, university sector is... You know, 99% is stealing, but that's just how it goes. You know, that's how it should be. <laughs> sharing best practice is what I like to call it. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Sharing best practice is a much more PC way of putting it. But, but you know, that that is part and parcel of it. You know, university sector and higher education sector as a whole is all about bringing some of the best minds together, whether they be the students that you're teaching and growing or whether that be the staff that you're employing building things and then sharing that knowledge across others you know i think it's it's part of part and parcel of being in the sector and it is nice to see that happening within pbsa obviously the concern as you say is if some of those lessons or best practice was learned through error then it could still inherently have a bit of error involved and i suppose this is where really we're coming towards what what really the brunt of your research came to which was what you're looking for and what you what you think the sector and the pbsa sector could do to move forward so what would you kind of say in as a summary that you came to is what would you want the sector to be doing what are your recommendations and how to address this well something that comes up time and time again in the sector when people are critical of pbsa is that it's not regulated or it's not regulated very well. Now, there is a code, it's the ANAC code, and the vast majority are signed up to this voluntary code. And I'll repeat that, it is voluntary for those who are not aware of it. And there's a number of codes in place. It's run by UNIPOL, it's been in place since 2004, I think. And there's the code for accommodation run by educational establishments, so universities, and then there's the code for uh, accommodation that's run by private entities like operators and that code swiftly looks at like the marketing of accommodation collecting rental fees the compliance returning deposits things like that and there's two tiny bits in it two small points that talk about staff and one is that staff members or nominated staff members will have done the online ANOC code and the other one is that staff will have an awareness of diversity issues now that's quite broad that could be anything in my mind anyway but what we don't have in comparison to North America, where obviously it's much more established as a profession, is we don't have a set of competency frameworks. We don't have a code or you know a piece of paper that says, these are the things that you should know as an accommodation manager working in any type of student accommodation. And if you were to draw it on the you know back of a cigarette box and you were to bullet point it, it'll be things like, 
the things in the ANAC code, but what's missing is the softer stuff. So the conflict management training, the cultural understanding and awareness, um, signposting skills, student mental health training or awareness of mental health training. Um, and, and there's more like boundaries, I think is really, really important as well. Critical instant management procedures, the university partnership stuff. I think it's actually really beneficial to have an awareness of what it is to be a student today and what they're facing, Gen Z and you know Generation Alpha is coming after that I think it's important to have awareness of some social media platforms as well and how that can feed into your role um there's there's so many other things that I think that we're missing a trick on and a coup over in the US they have a code of this already it's been in place for a while it is voluntary but actually it's a really good starting point to look at and see where we can develop this a little bit more and this is something where I think if we did this we might potentially retain people in the sector we might attract different types of people into the sector because we could adjust our position descriptions and our job advertisements and things like that and it's an area I think it's really really important because so many of us just fall into the sector and we just fall into higher education generally and actually I think it would help us do a bit better and do better by our students which is the most important thing the end of the day and i hope that as well through being involved perhaps in your study and just in general experiencing some of these things for the first time without that induction that that sort of generation of staff in pbsa that are learning on the job that don't have these codes of practices or whatever you want to call it or inductions that include that softer skills that we do have in student affairs across the higher education sector is the hope will be that those people will take this forward and go well actually when I progress or when I become X position, I want to make sure that that exists. So it's making sure that we're kind of embedding that in staff now and that idea that they then feed down when they are in those positions that they're being managed by now. Just, I suppose, kind of like yourself, you know, you've you've gone through that experience as accommodation manager, deputy accommodation manager, and now you're at a place where you reflected on that experience, have provided this piece of research, which could well be a, a good seminal point for PBSA potentially, as as you mentioned, with the sort of the dearth of research of PBSA of this particular area on staff, this could be quite an important point for PBSA to take forward. And if they do take it on, then it could be a good stage to say, well, you know, we really need to to look at this and, and change how we're moving forward. And hopefully it will be the staff that drives the change. Yeah. And I think the way you appeal to anybody working in PBSA, because it, it did come through in the research as well. I, I know I didn't mention this, is that a lot of the training that staff wanted they didn't get because they felt that it was there was a cost associated with it. And if you're a big operator with a lot of accommodation managers or a lot of deputy accommodation managers, it's a multiplier effect. So, you know, mental health first aid is an expensive course. It's a brilliant course, but you multiply that by 10 accommodation managers, and that's quite expensive. And then if three leave, well, then it's three more. And so you've got to repeat that. And I'm not saying that you make it compulsory, but I think we should weave something into some sort of comp- competency framework about how they can be more effective in their roles. But the the issue is is that the strategies employed for induction and training just varies across the sector so much. And PBSA generally, I find, particularly if it's investors, you have to make the decision of whether something can get spent on anything like staff development. Um, you know, they want to know what is the return on that. So, am I going to get more students to stay? Am I going to like hit 
occupancy targets next year or am I going to have a better bottom line and whatnot and I think and while there isn't any research to do this I do think if you're training staff if you're inducting them through a proper structure induction program if you're transitioning them into the sector or into the business they haven't worked for you before or they haven't worked in the sector before and if you are working hard to help them understand the holistic requirements of the position because typically they are the first point of contact that a student will go to if they if they need something and if those students then feel the staff are competent to deal with all the range of requests that come up well then maybe they will book and come back next year as well and maybe they will stay and so if you're trying to convince an operator why you should do this well there's your answer you know yeah absolutely It, it it is i suppose something perhaps that arguably is a difficult thing to quantify it is a tricky thing to give numerical value to in in higher education we know this if you're working in student affairs the amount of times we're asked for for proof of our impact for for kpis for all of these things it's so hard to translate that into something tangible without sort of saying well you know without us this is perhaps what could happen sometimes that's really the only way to do things but it's maybe taking that approach that that a, a private entity may not be quite as used to doing into something which is often very tangible. You know, you have X amount of beds, you put students in them, you then have no beds remaining. It's quite simple mathematics, but with this, it, it's not quite as straightforward as that. And and hopefully it's something which the uh, PBSA sector can can learn to to do because it's so important and, and your research really highlighted the importance for staff in it as well. Something I did want to ask before we kind of start to wrap up was, I found working on my thesis quite a, a reflective thing. It was it involved me just as much as it did everybody else. So I kind of ask you, what what impact has doing your research had on you as as a person, as a professional, or even as a researcher? What have you taken away from all of this? Yeah, I guess in many sense. It, it did feel quite reflective actually and it brought me back to what it was like to be in that very student-facing position I know I talk about all the time before but working as an accommodation manager is a very physically emotionally taxing role push aside there's a global pandemic happening but this time of year is exhausting you've you're in the middle of you know intake and your students coming in and a lot of people think that when you work in accommodation you have the summer off you absolutely do not have the summer off. You generally have summer business and short stays and run a kind of hotel operation. And you're busy turning around those rooms and getting ready for intake. And that's a physically demanding job. It's not a case of you send off some cleaners to do it. You have to go check those rooms over and over again and make sure they have everything they need for those students, as well as everything else that you have to do. And it's it, it's a tough job. So it reminded me of that and how even more difficult that role has been this year for those on the ground. Because you have to remember, student accommodation staff were identified as key workers. They all stayed. They didn't go home and work from home. Very small number did, but the vast majority were on site, including maintenance operatives and cleaners and security staff. They were on site responding to students' needs and the students who could not go home or choose not to go home for lots of different reasons. And they haven't had a break in the same way. I mean, working from home isn't a break, but they've been as full on as they've ever been. So it's it's reminded me of how difficult that job is, how tiring it is, but also 
it reminds me how much and I've always known this how much people care about their students and how much they go above and beyond to make it the very best experience they can um but it's a difficult job and it's one that definitely needs to be recognized a bit more in the sector and um there are ways in which we do that through awards and whatnot and through individual awards within different operators but in terms of support we can definitely do better than that um personally then it just makes me want to do more research uh, surprisingly enough you know most people will finish a, a master's and go I never want to see anything ever again but actually it's probably kind of a little bit of a fire in me in terms of wanting to do more research and because there's such a paucity of research and I use that word quite a lot in my thesis I just want to add to it because I want to enhance the sector and I want to make it better and I want other people to get value from any research that I can do or other people can do maybe this will prompt other people to do certain things and um yeah, I, I want I want to do more, surprisingly enough. I'll have a little bit of a break, but I, I definitely want to do more. Yeah, you will have a little bit of a break because uh, <laughs> you've got to you've got to take a little bit of a break. It's it's a difficult time. Obviously, there's a lot happening for you and for everybody in the world at the moment. So take a little break. But I understand what you mean. It's it's definitely a case of wanting to to add more. And certainly, as you say, with with so little for bringing that staff voice in PBSA to the forefront, I can totally understand that wanting to bring that on is, is so important especially when some really intense and important discussions were held so uh, again really awesome piece of research it's been lovely talking to you about it and there you go it wasn't so bad being a guest was it ah it was all right no it was really good I actually feel like there's so much more I could talk about and that we've only really scratched the surface and it's again you know me I always write more than I need to and it's the same as a thesis I want to talk more about it I want to write more about it and um I just want to say thank you to all the participants actually I'm sure some of them might listen to this actually I do I do know some of them listen to the podcast and uh, because they were amazing and they were so I think open to sharing their experiences and it's a brave thing to do because I have to do a lot of work behind the scenes to keep their identity anonymous which is very important but they 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 did it because they wanted to better the sector they too had that passion to make things better and to improve the work that they do for other people coming behind them yeah absolutely and a big thank you to them from me as well and and to you for a piece of research which i really hope will prove very very important and helpful for the sector moving forward well that was a reflection on Rebecca's research and hopefully in a couple of episodes time we'll be looking at my research which will be a completely different topic uh, but in between that we have another episode lined up for you where we'll be talking to Tom Truman another one of our rising stars in this rising stars series which we have decided on there you go I'm officially announcing it's going to be a series now Rebecca so we've got to do it um, but we'll be speaking to Tom in the middle episode as well and that will be coming out very very soon in the meantime thank you very much for listening take care and stay safe